Shadowcastaudio.com presents The Masters of Horror, the anthology. Welcome to a world hidden behind the blinds of reality, a landscape waiting to be molded into a thing of pain and torture. This anthology is not for the faint-hearted. The ideas, themes, and disturbing images portrayed within will send your brain into overdrive on the road to madness. This book is guaranteed to rob you of sleep at night and bring you the nightmares you've most feared. You've been warned. Mark Edward Hall is a songwriter, a short story writer, and a novelist. His first published novel, The Lost Village, was recommended for a Bram Stoker Award and nominated for a Tombstone Award. His newest book, The Haunting of Sam Cabot, is available from Damnation Books. He lives in Maine with his wife, Sheila. It can be found online at horrorwriters.ning.com forward slash profile forward slash Mark Edward Hall. Danny Davies is a podcaster, comedian and musician from Cambridge, England. He's partly responsible for the Soldiers of Tangent podcast with Marty Perrett and entirely to blame for the sketch comedy podcast, A Disappointment. You can find links to his work at www.thedannydavies.co.uk The Fear by Mark Edward Hall When Mitch Redland woke up with the fear inside him, he could only lay in bed, frozen in terror as his throat, nearly closed from a vicious assault of nocturnal screaming, gagged and convulsed in its struggle to admit fresh air. For a long time, he lay on his back, staring up at the dark ceiling, trying to get his breathing and his nerves right again. When he was finally able to throw his legs over the side of the bed, he sat with his head in his hands, all sweat-soaked and feverish, trying to decide what his next move should be. Unwilling to try and make any immediate sense of the dream, Mitch struggled unsteadily to his feet and left the bedroom. There were no lights on in the small trailer house, but the moon was bright, and its ambient light through the windows was sufficient to allow Mitch safe passage to the kitchen. There he stood at the sink, running a glass of water with trembling hands. He poured aspirin tablets into his mouth from an open bottle on the countertop and chased them down with a swallow of the lukewarm water. Putting the glass atop the pile of dirty dishes, Mitch limped to the door, moved the curtain aside and peered out into the night. He surveyed the driveway and the ramshackle garage beyond. Nothing looked out of place at least not from his vantage point inside the house. But why should anything be out of place? His rational mind asked. It can't see you in here, not with the lights out. What the hell are you talking about? What can't see me in here? It. It? Yeah. The thing you felt while you were sleeping. The thing that made you... scream... The thing that used to make you shit the bed and tear at your scar, trying to get it out of you. The fear. It's back. Oh, God, no. If you felt it while you were sleeping, then it must already be inside the house, Mitch. Or maybe it's already inside... you. Mitch whirled as he caught a glimpse of something out of the corner of his eye. A tiny, bent form scurried across the living room carpet. Mitch screamed as his heart hammered into a gallop. Oh, Jesus, he said. Oh, Jesus Christ, this can't be happening. Mitch stood stark still, staring at the place where he thought he'd seen the tiny, scurrying form. He saw no more movement, but that didn't mean anything. The house was dark and filled with shadows, and there were plenty of places for... it... to hide. Mitch bent over, resting his hand on his trembling knees as his breath sucked asthmatically through constricted airways. That's when he noticed the dark stains. They were all over the front of his sweats and his nightshirt. He straightened up, raising his hands, holding the palms close to his face, straining to see them in the dim light. 
the dream intruded on him suddenly, in all its gruesome detail. Oh, Jesus, no, he said, turning sharply and limping down the corridor. In the bathroom, Mitch flipped on the light and gawked at himself in the mirror. It was worse than he could have imagined. The blood was everywhere, smears of it on his face and clots of it in his unkempt hair. The front of his shirt and sweats appeared to be finger-painted with the stuff. They looked like a macabre map of some unknown continent. Most of it had dried, leaving his pants and shirt stiff, like a second skin frozen with rigour. On his face, however, the blood was still wet. It had mixed with his sweat and tears, and the combination looked like a haphazard watercolour painting on the face of a ghoul. Dear God, what happened here? Mitch stumbled back into his bedroom and turned on the light. The sheets were covered in blood, and there was a small pool of it on the floor. He peeled off his blood-stained garments and surveyed his body. Finding no signs of injury, other than the long, familiar scar that ran the entire length of his right torso, he got down on his hands and knees and tentatively peered under the bed. He didn't really expect to find anything. He'd seen the small, bent form before, of course, dozens of times. It always accompanied the dreams, but he'd never been able to catch it with his full vision before it disappeared, thus he'd never been able to identify it. Probably a good thing. After searching the house thoroughly, Mitch went back into the bathroom and ran a hot shower. When he was clean, he dressed and walked slowly back into the living room. The fear. Is that what this was about? The fear. It was as familiar as an old acquaintance, as welcome as cancer. The fear had gone out of him years ago, right about the time he had moved out of his mother's house. He couldn't remember the exact moment. The point was, just like that, one day it was gone. And he had been so grateful, so damned relieved. But now somehow it had found its way back to him, only worse. Before, there had never been any blood. The dreams, yes, in gruesome detail, but there was never any real blood. God almighty, now he would have to learn how to deal with that horrific thing in his life again, that feeling that there was something not in his house, or his room, or even his bed. It was the sick and dreadful sensation that there was something inside him, some invader or infestation that made him go along and be a part of something unspeakable. The fear had visited Mitch on a regular basis when he was growing up. His mother had to get up in the night and comfort him, but no amount of comfort had been sufficient enough to stem Mitch's night terrors. The episodes had resulted in psychiatric counselling, but they had not ended there. How do you explain to a doctor, a mother, or anybody else, for that matter, that it wasn't the dark or the boogeyman that you were afraid of? It wasn't what was waiting under the bed or hiding in the closet that frightened you. How does a kid explain something that he himself doesn't even understand, could never hope to understand? That there was something getting inside of you at night and forcing you to see things, maybe even do things, act so unspeakable they would always be with you flawlessly remembered, each room and each body, frozen forever in your mind's eye. Yes, Mitch had seen them all, through nightmare eyes. He had watched as the butcher knife did its dirty business. In those days the fear, as Mitch would come to know and name the infestation, would enter his body at night and take him along on its macabre journeys, force him to experience the horrors of murder and blood and evil. Mitch had never actually done any of those things, of course. He'd just been a reluctant witness to the atrocities, an unwitting partner in crime, to something evil beyond articulation. At least, that's what he chose to believe. And Mitch had never dared mention the swelling of his scar following each incident. And what about the accompanying pain? Just like now, a terrible, deep-rooted agony that no amount of medicine could quell. I can't stand to go through this again, Mitch thought. I need to talk to Ma. No, Mitch, that's exactly what you don't need. 
Why don't you want me to talk to her? Because she doesn't have anything to tell you. I think she does. I think she knows. Mitch, don't. Don't tell me what to do. I'm sick of it, and I'm sick of you. I'm going to talk to her. Listen, Mitch, do you want the bitch to die? What? If you say one fucking word to her, she's dead. I promise. You'd better not hurt her, you son of a bitch. I won't make any guarantees, Mitch. I'm going over there in the morning. I don't care what you say. Okay, Mitch. But remember, I warned you. Mitch walked slowly to the couch and gingerly sat down on its worn upholstery, wondering what to do next. The aspirin was starting to work. The ache in his side was receding in slow, radiating waves. That was something, at least. He looked up at the clock. It said 3.20 a.m. Maybe if I just sit here and don't fall back to sleep, everything will be okay, Mitch thought. After the sun comes up, I'll go and see Ma and make sure she's all right and, and tell her that the fear is back and that I need some answers. There's no real reason to believe any harm will come to her. Mitch suddenly felt a small tug in his lower right torso. He stiffened and sat upright, panic causing his respiration to accelerate. The tug turned into a finger of unpleasant sensation as it moved up the length of his torso, tracing the scar there as if a worm crawled beneath his skin. Now the worm had moved into his chest, towards his heart. Mitch gave a small squawk of panic as the sensation blossomed into something otherworldly. He imagined a hand squeezing his heart, the pressure intensifying until he thought it would explode. No! Mitch screamed as he fell to the floor, writhing in agony. The sensation stopped suddenly. Mitch lay on the dusty carpet for a long time, his breath coming and going in painful bursts, his entire body bathed in cold sweat. When he opened his eyes, a ray of sun slanting in through a nearby window nearly blinded him. He had fallen asleep. God, as much as he tried not to, he succumbed to sleep's dreadful summons and under its spell he'd experienced another terrifying bout with the fear. He'd seen his mother. Jesus Christ, no! It couldn't be! Mitch clawed his way to a sitting position, keenly aware of his aching torso. When he realised he'd soiled himself, he began to weep. God Almighty, he cried, why can't you just leave me alone? But of course... There was no answer to his pathetic pleadings. Why should there be? The Redland home was a late 19th century two-storey building in a dilapidated state. Paint was peeling off in large sheets and shutters hung askew. The grass around the structure was three feet high and filled with booby traps. Several old cars sat rusted and wheelless in the tall grass, unpleasant reminders of years gone and of mother's occasional boyfriends, of drunken rages and brutal fists. Mitch parked his battered truck out in front and got out, slamming the rusty door behind him. He stood for a long moment, looking up at the building before making his way along the cracked concrete walkway to the front door. The house beckoned darkly behind soiled windows, like mirrors that no longer cast reflections. A sick knot began forming inside Mitch's gut. The torso scar ached. Mitch had to fight with himself to keep from digging at it with his fingernails. When Mitch reached the front door, he hesitated as fear seized him. The door was standing wide open. He stepped up onto the stoop and put one foot across the threshold when an enormous shadow descended over him. Mitch screamed and fell back against the door jamb. Hey, Mitch, is that you? Jesus Christ, you scared the shit out of me. A skinny old man with greasy hair and a tanned, leathery complexion stood staring at Mitch with wild green eyes. He had on grease-stained khakis tied around the waist with hemp rope and a green flannel shirt with the sleeves cut off at the shoulders. Oh, Christ, Al, Mitch said, 
recognising the source of the shadow. You almost gave me a goddamn heart attack. What the hell are you doing here? Al's green eyes remained wide open in inquiry, bulging like a man with serious goiter problems. Oh, I guess you haven't heard yet, huh? Mitch's heart rate accelerated. Heard what? Mitch's eyes drew down on Al McKinney, one of his mother's oldest and dearest friends. Al lived a quarter of a mile down the road from the Redlands, in a house that was more a sprawling shack than a real house. The place was a single-storey tar-paper structure, surrounded by heaps of scrap and the skeletons of old automobiles. Al was in the salvage business, had been all his life, and he proudly wore the scars of his profession like shrapnel wounds. His wife, Mildred, was ten years in the grave. They'd raised six kids in that tar-paper palace. All of them had gone off to college and made something of their lives. Someone broke in last night, Al said. Your mum got cut up real bad. Those two sentences slammed into Mitch like bullets. He thought he might drop dead right there in front of Al. He had to fight with everything inside him to quell his rising panic. Oh, God, Mitch said. Is she dead? No, no. Relax, boy. They took her to the hospital. Well, how bad is it? Looks like whoever did it didn't intend to kill her, Al said. I don't know what the hell they were thinking. Scrawled a bunch of skin-deep slashes all over her body. Like it was some kind of game or warning or something. Game? Warning? Mitch said. The cops have already come and gone, Al said, avoiding Mitch's stare. They tried to call you, but the operator said your phone was disconnected. Mitch avoided Al's gaze. Lost my job, he said. Couldn't pay the bill. Al nodded in understanding. I think they're going to want to talk to you later, Mitch. The cops, I mean. What on earth for? My God, I wouldn't hurt my own mother. I know that, Mitch, but they don't. They took some prints and stuff from the blood in her bedroom. Said they might have a better idea later in the day as to who might have done this. You can relax, Mitch. I saw some of the prints and they're smaller than yours. How much smaller? A lot, Al said. His buggy eyes swam in his head. Mitch thought he saw a species of fear in those eyes. His own heart hammered inside his chest. Listen, Mitch, do you want the bitch to die? Just remember, I warned you. Jesus, Mitch thought, the panic swelling in him like a tide. It couldn't be. Mitch tried to move past Al, but Al stepped in his path, blocking him. Get out of the way, Al. There's nothing for you to see in there, Mitch. The cops put a barricade up at her bedroom door. No one's allowed in until they're through with the investigation. Mitch stood staring at Al, remembering the terrible night he'd just gone through, remembering those dozens of other past nights and their accompanying nightmares. And not knowing how he felt, not knowing how he should feel, Mitch turned and made his way back outside, Owl following behind him. The two men walked in silence to Mitch's pickup. Mitch leaned over and gagged, nearly puking. His heart raced and his head swam. Owl leaned against a rusty fender, watching him in silence. The old man produced a hand-rolled cigarette, lit it, and took a huge drag. Thick columns of grey smoke wafted from his thin nose, and deflated mouth. Mitch straightened up, scrutinising Al through wet eyes. What were you doing in the house, Al? Al managed to look both embarrassed and hurt. Just gathering up a few of her things, Mitch, you know, in case she might need them at the hospital. I came by this morning and found her like that. Al looked away his eyes cloudy with emotion. Mitch nodded, still watching Al thoughtfully. You loved her, didn't you, Al? Al gave a nervous cough, his brown, leathery complexion turning suddenly pale. I know, Al, Mitch said. No need to be embarrassed about it. Al dropped his cigarette and crushed it angrily beneath a worn leather shoe. What do you know, Mitch? 
His voice had turned hard, and he leaned in toward Mitch, looking curiously like a vulture sizing up meat. His strange green eyes bulged madly from their sockets. How much do you really know, boy? Al's voice rose. Tell me what you think you know, and maybe I'll tell you some things you don't. Hold on, Mitch said, backing away, holding his hands up defensively. I only meant that I suspected for a long time, since I was a kid, that you and Ma, well... Yeah, I loved her. Still do. So what? I helped her through some hard times, when she got pregnant and had nobody to turn to. I was the one she called. No one else gave a damn. Everyone else... Everyone was afraid of her. Can you believe that? A beautiful woman like her. Women all hated her, yeah. Including my wife, because she was so... Beautiful. And all the men wanted her. She wouldn't spit in any of their faces. So they made stories up about her. Said she was a whore. And a witch. Because she used to read people's fortunes and... Some of her predictions didn't turn out so good. You mean she was wrong? No! Jesus, no, she was right, don't you see? She... She could see right through these pathetic fools in this pathetic town and they couldn't stand it. And she saw other things, too. The murders and all. You remember the murders, don't you, Mitch? When you were a kid. All the talk around that she was the one causing him. Some even wanted to burn her at the stake. But she wasn't to blame. Christ, she only saw things. She didn't do them. So help me, if anyone ever laid a hand on Elizabeth Redland, I would have killed the bastards. Help me, God, I would have. Even though I grew up here and knew these people, I would have killed anyone that touched her. Al stopped. His face was vivid with rage, and he was puffing asthmatically through noisy airways. Why didn't you take her in after her your wife died, Al? Al flapped a contemptuous hand. I would have in a minute, Mitch. But she didn't love me. Christ, I'm a junk man, and she was a goddess. After she fell down the cellar stairs and lost the use of her legs, I came by every day, though, just like this morning, and, and did things for her, stuff she couldn't do for herself. And I did love her. And I know she knew it, even though neither of us ever spoke of it. For me, it was just enough to be around her. But you can't understand that, can you, Mitch? When you got old enough, you bailed out, leaving her to fend for herself. Al was staring accusingly at Mitch. God damn it, Al, my childhood was one long fucking nightmare. I had to leave. You know that. Mitch turned, facing the ramshackle house that had once been his home. What happened to me in that house, Al? If anybody knows you do, I could never get Mart to talk to me rationally about it, about the nightmares and the things I saw, the murders you were just talking about. I saw them all, Al, and they were real. How is that possible, Al? How is it possible that a little kid saw such terrible things in his nightmares? Mitch suddenly yanked the hem of his shirt out of his trousers, lifting it, showing Al the ugly scar that ran the entire length of his right torso. This has something to do with it, Al. What is this? Do you know? If you do, for God's sakes, tell me. It's been there for as long as I remember, and nobody has explained to me where it came from. Al's entire body seemed to deflate inward all at once. His face went ashen. He turned and began walking away from Mitch, shaking his head. Mitch went after him, grabbing his arm and pulling him around. You do know, don't you? Your mum was no ordinary woman, Mitch. She was exotic and beautiful, and she had this kind of magnetism. When she first came to Eden, everybody felt it, and most were drawn to her and this place. Some became her friends, and some used her. They came every day in the beginning, two and three at a time, like followers of some cult, to get their fortunes read and to hear about their futures. But when they started to realise it wasn't a game, that your mum could actually read the future, and some of the things she read came true and weren't very pleasant, that's when they turned against her. You see, people don't really want to know the truth about themselves. They only want to hear the good stuff. Never the truth. Al, I know all that. For Christ's sake, I had to live with her. 
What I don't know is what all this has to do with this. Mitch pointed again at his right side. And what about the murders? Who did them? You know, don't you? Al stood like a statue, staring at Mitch, without answering. And who's my father, Al? Is it you? Al gave his head a rueful shake. I wish I was, Mitch. You don't know how many times I've wished that. But I'm not, and I'm afraid only your mum can answer your questions. But you know, don't you? Years ago I made Liz a promise, Mitch, and I intend to keep it. I'm afraid you'll have to get your answers from her. Mitch, unable to control his emotions, lunged at Al, grabbing him by the shirt lapels and pushing him against the cab of his pickup. Al was thin and frail, and the air rushed from his lungs in a wretching gasp. The green eyes swam in his head. I want the truth, you old bastard! Mitch screamed directly into Al's face, pulling him forward and then forcing him back hard into the pickup's cab. God damn it, man! Tell me! Too late, Mitch realised that Al was in distress. He let go of him and backed away. Al's face had turned purple, like a livid bruise, and he was gasping for air. His right hand rose and gripped his left shoulder, massaging it. His bulging eyes swam with panic as his legs buckled and he slid to his knees. Oh, my God, Al, Mitch said, rushing to the man's aid. I didn't mean to... Go, Al said, through a gasp of agony. What? Your mother. You've got to talk to her before it's too late. Before he kills her. Before who kills her, Al? Jesus Christ, you're not making sense. Him. It's so... terrible. It's getting stronger. It wants to kill us both for what we did. We should have told you long ago. Go. She needs you. Al... Al, are you all right? No. No, I'm not all right, you stupid asshole. Can't you see I'm dying? Come on, Mitch said, trying to lift Al to his feet. I'm taking you to the hospital. Leave me alone, Al said, slapping Mitch's hands away. Let an old man die in peace, for Christ's sake. But Mitch could see that Al was breathing again and the colour had returned to his face. Are you sure? Yes. Go. But she won't talk to me, Al. She's never talked to me about any of this. I think she will now, Mitch. After what happened last night. Yeah, I think she will. His mother's room was on the second floor. As Mitch was entering, the day nurse was leaving. How is she? he whispered. The nurse gave Mitch a suspicious frown. I I'm her son, Mitch explained. The nurse nodded. Ah, yes, well, she has a lot of shallow cuts on her body. The doctor sewed up the ones that needed stitches. Most didn't, but those kind of wounds, the ones that don't go very deep, are the most painful. She's been given a mild sedative. She's resting peacefully now. Can I go in? Mr. Redland? Mitch looked down the corridor towards the source of the inquiry. Two men approached him, both wearing work suits. They looked like cops. As they drew closer, he recognised one of them. Mr. Redlin, the lead man inquired again. Mitchell Redlin. Yes. My name is Maxim, Detective Lou Maxim, from the Eden Police. He held out his hand. Mitch took it tentatively. And this is Detective Willis. Yeah, Detective Willis and I met. What can I do for you? would like to ask you a few questions concerning your mother, Elizabeth Redlin. Yeah? What do you want to know? Would you step over here, sir, into the visitor area? The two men led Mitch to a small waiting room at the end of the corridor. There were half a dozen chairs and several tables stacked with magazines. Except for them, the alcove was unoccupied. Have a seat, Mr. Redlin. Mitch sat down, feeling awkward and uncomfortable. We've been trying to contact you since this morning, Maxim informed him. We tried calling you, but there was no phone service, so we drove out to your place and had a look around. Mitch stared at the man waiting for him to go on, wishing he would hurry up and get to the point.
Have you had a chance to speak to your mother, Mr. Redland? Mitch shook his head. No, I, I just got here. Good. We wanted to talk to you first. What about? Of course, you know that your mother was attacked last night. Yes, Al, Al McKinney told me. Al McKinney? The detective repeated. How well do you know the man? Quite well. He's been a family friend for more than twenty years. Why? What's this about? Will asked the questions, the detective named Willis said. He was a large man with a puffy, florid face and droopy eyes. There was anger in him, and animosity. Mitch knew him from years ago. He'd been one of the cops who investigated the rash of murders back then. He'd questioned his mother, and Mitch sensed that he'd been interested in her. But so were all the men. She wouldn't have pissed in his face if his hair had been on fire, and she'd pretty much told him so. Afterward, he'd unsuccessfully tried to link her to the murders. He was an asshole, and Mitch did not like him. All right, Mitch said, settling back in his chair. Ask away. Where were you last night, Mr. Redland? At home. So you didn't go out at all? No. How long has it been since you last saw your mother? I don't know, a couple of months, maybe. But you went to see her this morning. Yeah? So? So why this morning? Willis asked. Mitch shrugged. I stop by every so often. It's, it's not against the law, is it? Don't be a wise ass, Redlin, Willis said. Maxim held up his hand. We're just trying to get to the bottom of this situation, Mr. Redlin, he said in a reasonable voice. Of course it's not against the law for you to see your mother. We just think it's odd that you haven't been there in two months and the morning after she's attacked, you do. I can't explain it, Mitch said. Just coincidence, I guess. Coincidence, my ass, Willis exploded. I know your mother and I know you. He sat forward in his seat and pointed an accusatory finger at Mitch. She had something to do with all those murders back in the 80s and 90s. We could never prove it, but that didn't make it not so. Why? Mitch asked. Because she predicted some of them? She's a psychic. I don't believe in Hocus Pocus, Redland. She knew about them because she knew who was doing them. Plain and simple. There can be no other explanation. Mitch stood up. I don't have to listen to this, he said. If you guys want to charge me with something, do it now, because I'm not answering any more of your questions. That's all right, Mr. Redland, Maxim said. You don't have to answer now. But I must tell you that we're in the process of obtaining a warrant to search your home. Mitch glared at the cops, turned, and made his way towards the room that contained his injured mother. Mitch was unprepared for the sight that greeted him as he approached his mother's bed. Elizabeth Redland's once beautiful face was now a relief map of shallow lacerations. Her identity had literally been snatched from her by the blade of some razor-sharp instrument. She was asleep, so Mitch sat in a chair near her bed, waiting for her to awaken. As the afternoon wore on, and she didn't stir, Mitch became restless, so he got up and began to pace the room. The scar itched so badly that Mitch began to dig at it, at one point drawing blood. God damn it, he hissed, looking down on his sleeping mother. Wake up! With those words, Elizabeth Redlin opened her eyes. Mitchell? Is that you? Yes, ma. Mitch said, going to her side. How do you feel? Now you ask. Ma, we don't have time for games. I need to know who did this to you. I can't tell you, son. God damn it, Ma, your life is in danger. Al McKinney said he made you a promise. I need to know what it was, and I need to know now. It wasn't Al's fault, Mitchell. I don't care about blame, Ma. Listen, last night I had one of my dreams. I woke up covered in blood and the scar on my side was pulsing like it was alive. Elizabeth Redland stared at her son for a long moment and Mitch saw terror swell in her eyes. When I got pregnant with you, Al was the one who helped me. She said, that's all. He just helped me. No one else would. By that time most of the town had turned against me. 
Why, mother? What was the real reason they turned against you? I saw inside them some. I saw the things some of them have done, and the things some of them would do in the future. Such terrible secrets hide inside people, you know. And my only mistake was being honest with them. I should have lied. I should have made up nice little stories about them so that they could go on believing their own myths. You saw the murders, didn't you, Ma? Just like I did. Elizabeth Redlon shook her head. Not like you, son. Nobody saw them like you did. But I knew, and I was powerless to do anything about them. Al said that it was something he and you did. Some terrible thing that should never have been done. But he wouldn't explain. What else did Al tell you? He said that it wanted to kill you both for what you did. That it was getting stronger. What is it, Ma? Tell me, what wants to kill you? Elizabeth Redland's eyes filled with tears. A monster, she said. Mitch wasn't sure he'd heard her right. What? A monster, Mitch. We did it for you so that you could have a life. I'm, I'm so sorry now. Ma, you're not making sense. What do you mean, a monster? What kind of monster? Does it have something to do with the fear? With all the shit that happened back when I was a kid? Elizabeth nodded. It began when you were around six. That's when he started coming back. Who started coming back? You began waking up in the night, screaming. I'd go to you and you'd be covered in blood. Your bed, your pyjamas, your body. Everything. Covered in blood. At first I thought you'd somehow injured yourself while you slept. But I'd examine your body and find nothing except your scar, Mitch. On those nights your scar would be livid and pulsing, like it was alive or something, like a freshly healed wound. You'd be screaming and irrational and scratching at the scar, telling me about the fear. I was so scared, Mitch. I, I, I didn't know what to do. Night after night it would happen. The blood and the screaming. Oh, God, the awful screaming. I don't remember the blood, Ma. Last night was the first time. And there was blood. A lot of it. Elizabeth gave a quick shake of her head. There was always blood, Mitch. I would clean you up and change your bedclothes. If you want the truth, I think it was so horrible that you blocked that part out of it. And I'm so thankful. About a week after your first episode, I picked up the paper and saw that Mrs. Lansky, a friend of mine, had been found dead in her bedroom. Her body was partly decomposed. She'd been dead about a week. She'd been brutally murdered. Slashed her ribbons. And two weeks later you had another episode and they found Arlene Trot the same way. And then there were more of them, all the same, all butchered in their beds. The town began to panic. They needed to find a killer, but the evidence just didn't add up. What evidence? I, I thought there wasn't any evidence. Oh, there was evidence, all right. But it was too crazy, too unbelievable for anyone to accept. Who's the killer, Ma? Tell me. A child, Mitch. At all the crime scenes, smeared in the blood, they found the handprints and footprints of a very young child. Mitch felt panic clawing at his insides, and suddenly he could not breathe. He stood up and backed away from his mother, gasping for air, his eyes wide open and staring. How, how old, Ma? Mitch croaked. How old was the child? Your age. Mitch fell to his knees beside the bed, his mouth dry, his head thrumming in agony. Was it me, Ma? Dear God, was I the killer? No, son. The relief Mitch felt was astounding, washing over him like warm tidal waters, making him dizzy. But how, how did you know? Because on the nights of the murders you were home, in my arms, screaming in panic, delirious with the visions that you were somehow being forced to witness, you saw 
everything, Mitch. What about the blood, Ma? Where was the blood coming from? Your scar. What? What? Mitch shook his head confusedly. He wasn't sure he understood. Your scar. On the nights of the murders, your scar would open up like a fountain, and I swear you would bleed out half your body's supply before the scar would suddenly begin to heal again. By morning it would be healed, but, but red and irritated, and it would pulse like it had its own heart. Oh, my God. That's what happened to me last night. Elizabeth leaned forward toward her son, her pale blue eyes filled with terror. Who? Who, Mitch? she asked. Who did you see in your dream? Mitch shook his head. Come on, Mitch, I need to know. Why? Because when you were a child, every time you had one of your attacks, someone would die, and you always knew. Mitch swallowed, thinking that he might go crazy. Tears had filled his eyes, and his scar was aching again, only now it was worse than before, like there was something inside it, scratching to get out. There were two of them, Ma. Elizabeth stared at her son. The first was Al McKinney, and the second one was you. Elizabeth Redland stopped breathing. Mitch saw the desperate terror in her eyes. Oh, God, Mitch. What have I done? But you're not dead, Mitch said, taking his mother's trembling hands in his. Somehow you escaped. No, son, Elizabeth said. You're mistaken. I am dead. I've been dead since I made the decision to do what I did all those years ago. What happened to me last night was, well, just child's play. Jesus, Ma, what the hell are you talking about? I don't understand any of this. He's trying to force me to tell you. Who, Ma? Jesus Christ, who? All of the victims were my clients, Elizabeth went on, a dreamy look in her eyes. It was as though he'd read it inside my head. Or perhaps it was your thoughts he was reading. I, I, I don't know. God, you see, it, it, it wasn't just me that he punished. He punished you too, Mitch, and I could never figure out why. Mitch stared. The Eden Police Force somehow put it all together and tried to pin the blame on me, despite the evidence that a child was the only other person at the crime scenes, the only one that could possibly have done the crimes. But it didn't make any sense. Little kids don't commit murder. But they kept coming back to me, trying to figure out how I was doing it convinced that I was accomplishing it through some sort of psychic witchery, or perhaps that I was even manipulating you. You see, the fact that all the victims had been my clients was the only other common link. You don't know how afraid I've been all these years, Mitch. And how sorry. Mitch leaned forward, staring into his mother's eyes, knowing somehow, and feeling like he might lose his mind. I couldn't tell you, Mitch. Don't you see? It was wrong what we did. You would have hated me. But I didn't know what else to do. It seemed like the sanest thing at the time. Elizabeth Redlin broke into heavy sobs. How could I have known he'd come back, Mitch? How could I have known that there'd be some sort of psychic or supernatural link between you two? The police were a lot closer to the truth than they could ever have guessed. Mitch's scar began to ache, dragging on him like a tide, threatening to pull him under for the last time. He brought his left hand around and began massaging it through his shirt, feeling the hard, pulsing scar tissue with his fingertips. Yes, deep down, he knew, of course. In that moment, he thought he'd always known. Soon after moving to the house in Eden, I was raped, Elizabeth Redland continued. The man that raped me, his wife was one of my clients. That's how I got to know him. He came to my door in the middle of the night, drunk, and he wanted me to have sex with him. I, I, I laughed in his face, so he forced his way in. 
Mitch stared at his mother in disbelief. Are you telling me that I'm the product of a rape? Elizabeth Redland nodded as huge tears coursed down her scarred cheeks. And you never told me. I, I couldn't, Mitch. You see, nobody knew. You mean you never reported it? No, son. I, I wouldn't have been believed. Why not? Because he was a cop, one of Eden's finest, and by then I'd been branded a witch. By the time I found out I was pregnant, it was too late. I hid inside my house until you were born. Mitch stood up and began to pace. Which one is it, Ma? Which one of those sons of bitches did that to you? You know him, son. His, his name's Willis. Dale Willis. He's one of the cops that tried to hang me with the murders. Oh, my God. I don't believe this. You mean to say that that fat, ugly asshole is my father? Elizabeth nodded. I'll kill him. No, Mitch, he doesn't know. He knows he raped you. That's all that counts. Six months into the pregnancy, I knew something was wrong, Elizabeth continued. The pain had become nearly unbearable, and the, and the bleeding... God, the bleeding! I thought I'd die from that alone. But I couldn't go to the doctor. You see, Eden's a small town. My life had become an even bigger hell than it already was. So I hid it the best I could. I'd become acquainted with Al and Mildred McKinney. Mildred was one of my clients. They were the only two I told about the pregnancy. But when Mildred sensed that Al had become interested in me, she turned against me, like all the others in Eden. She spread the word about my pregnancy. Told everyone that I was a whore and a witch and every other name in the book. By then I was in my seventh month and I could do nothing but hide inside my house. I was hurting and bleeding so badly that Al insisted I go to the hospital. But I refused, you see, because I sensed something was wrong. I sensed that this would not be a birth I'd want the community at large to know about. Then one night, and the pain was nearly unbearable, I called Al. He came, but by then it was too late. You were already in the process of being born. Al was the one who delivered you, Mitch. He delivered both of you. Both of us, Mitch said, confused. Elizabeth looked at her son with imploring eyes. Yes, she said. You and your brother. Mitch stared at his mother, his mouth agape. He knew he'd heard her correctly, but he was still having trouble wrapping his brain around what she'd said. My what? Tears coursed down Elizabeth's injured cheeks. There were two of you, Mitch. You were conjoined. You were the normal healthy one. Your brother was shriveled and deformed, blackened like he'd been through a fire. He was bent forward at the spine and horribly misshapen. You weighed maybe five pounds. Your brother couldn't have weighed more than two. Oh, God, Mitch said as anger began to grip him. You've been keeping this from me for all these years. We did it for your own good, Mitch. For my own good? What we did was unforgivable, but we didn't know what else to do. Was my brother born alive? Mitch asked. Elizabeth nodded as tears coursed from her bloodshot eyes. He was a monster, Mitch. His head was three times as large as yours, but his body was tiny and shriveled. His eyes were yellow, like cloudy sapphires, and his teeth... God, those awful teeth! He was born with teeth! Elizabeth gave a quick nod of the head. He was a monster. I told you. He wasn't human. Somehow the devil got inside me and gave me a good child and an evil child. I cursed that bastard Willis after he raped me, put a spell on him, but it backfired. Maybe it was God's way of punishing me for the way I was, I, I, I don't know. What I do know is we had to make a choice. We thought we could save you if we got rid of your brother, but he came back, Mitch. How could we have known he'd come back? How could we have known that you two would always be joined together? Mitch sat in stunned silence, 
trying to absorb all his mother had told him. It was nearly impossible, of course. His brain was squealing like a bad internet connection, and he thought he'd go crazy any second. I asked Al to get the sharpest butcher knife in the cupboard, Elizabeth Redland went on. He did as I asked. Al always did what I asked him to. It was such a sap. I was bleeding and in great physical and emotional pain. I would have done it myself if I'd had the strength. You and your brother were joined in opposite directions. His right side was attached to your right side. Even if he had been normal, there was no way you two could have lived like that. I could see that it wouldn't be difficult to separate you. There were no common organs. Or at least I didn't think there were. You were joined merely by a stretch of skin on your right sides. After Al separated you, I sewed you up and doused the wound with alcohol. Oh, God, how you screamed. But you healed, Mitch. You healed and you were okay. I wasn't okay, Mitch screamed. I've never been okay. Elizabeth stared wide-eyed at her son. What happened to him? Mitch asked in a calm and reasonable voice. There was a swelling of insanity in his heart and it took a tremendous effort not to put his hands around his mother's neck and choke the life out of her. Elizabeth stared. I said, what happened to him? I told Al to take him and the knife out back and to bury them deep in the sand pile by the bend in the brook. I said that nobody would ever know and I made him promise never to tell. And nobody suspected a thing until six years later, when he came back and started killing. You buried him alive, Mitch said, as tears coursed down his cheeks. You buried my brother alive. You don't understand, Mitch, Elizabeth sobbed. He was a monster. We did it for you. No, mother, you did it for you. You buried your own child behind the house because he would have been an embarrassment to you. You're the monster. Mitch turned and left his mother weeping in her bed. It was dark by the time he reached the house. Mitch pulled his truck into the driveway and turned the engine off. He got out, closing the door carefully. The world was still and silent. The sky was clear and the moon was bright white, bathing the old house in motionless shadows. Mitch walked numbly to the door. It was still open, as it had been earlier in the day. He entered the kitchen. His scar was aching and throbbing, threatening to drag him to his knees. Mitch saw that there was a large object in the centre of the kitchen floor. He strained to identify it, though he guessed what it was but in the limited light, he could not make it out. He reached over and flipped on the kitchen light. The room was immediately bathed in light. On the floor, a huge red puddle beneath him lay Al McKinney, or what was left of him. He'd been slashed nearly to pieces. Blood had sprayed the ceiling and painted the walls. There was a bloody butcher knife on the floor beside him, and all around the body, smeared in blood, were the footprints of a child. On the far wall, scratched in a bloody hand, were these words. Out back by the brook. Mitch, I'll be waiting for you. Mitch bent down and picked up the knife, gazing at it with a kind of dazed reverence. He recognised it, of course. It was the same knife he'd seen dozens of times in his nightmares, its business of brutality evident by the wear on its blade and handle. He stood and walked trance-like into the living room, on the far wall, he stepped up to the window and pulled the curtain aside, gazing out into the moonlit backyard. Something small and bent scurried across the overgrown lawn. Mitch left the window and went out the back door, through the shed to the outside. The small bent form scurried into the woods at the far end of the yard. Mitch followed. When he reached the brook, his brother was waiting there for him, standing atop the sand pile in which he'd been buried. Mitch halted. He couldn't quite believe what he was seeing. His brother stood, bathed in moonlight, 
bent forward and horribly misshapen. The naked body was small and blackened as if it had been ruined by fire. The head was huge, however, as if some terrible disease had ravaged it, filling it with raw tumours. The eyes were large and bulbous and as fiercely yellow as sulphurous coal fires burning with phosphorescent life. Mitch's mother had described the eyes as cloudy yellow sapphires, but Mitch thought them more the colour of something alien, not of this earth. The creature had no nose, at least none that Mitch could see, just a black opening into a demented skull. The mouth was small and lipless, filled with teeth that would have been more at home in the mouth of a shark. Even in dreams, Mitch had never seen anything that approached the sight he laid his eyes upon now. She never even gave me a name, it said. I'm sorry, Mitch replied. Don't be. It wasn't your fault. Why did you do all those things? Mitch asked. What? The murders? It wasn't just me, Mitch. You were there too. You were part of it. Mitch shook his head. No, it was you. You made me go along. I've beat myself up for years thinking it was me. Now I know the truth. I saw everything, and it nearly drove me crazy. What about me, Mitch? What if you'd been buried alive out here instead of me? What would you have done? I would have died, Mitch hissed. You should have died. I don't understand. How, how is any of this possible? You're the one that kept me alive, Mitch. It is through you that I have lived, don't you see? Mitch stepped closer to the abomination. He was shaking his head as tears of emotion coursed down his cheeks. No, I don't see. Have you not felt my pain and my torment? Mitch gave his head a nod. He could not deny these truths. He felt everything as if he had been inside his brother's body, seen through his eyes, shared his heart and soul. But of course he still didn't understand. He might never understand. Nevertheless, a twisted species of curiosity made him probe deeper into the mystery. I want to know why, he demanded. Why? Why everything, Mitch sobbed. Why were you born? Why didn't you die? Why did you have to be my brother? The creature stared at Mitch, its sulphurous eyes burning. Mitch, it said. Why must there always be simple answers? Nothing is simple. I, I know, but still, there has to be some reason to things. You want reason, Mitch? Okay, I'll give you reason. It all happened because I was pissed off. There, how's that? You feel better? No, Mitch said, giving his head an angry shake. There's more to it than that. Jesus, Mitch, what do you want me to say? That I hung around because it was fun? Because I enjoy being like this? Because I get off on butchering people? Mitch stood motionless, staring. He felt he'd hit upon something. As preposterous as it was, this seemed the most obvious answer. Even if there was more to it, what difference did it make? He'd never get the truth from this godless creature. He was kidding himself if he thought he could. Only now did Mitch realise he still carried the murder weapon. His grip so strong, his hand hurt. In a sudden flash of inspiration, he knew what he had to do. He wanted a life of his own. A life free from nightmares and monsters, free of the terrible incumbencies of pain that racked his existence for so long. The scar on his side was dragging him down, threatening to take him to his knees, further evidence of his suffering, and his need to be free. It would all end here, Mitch vowed. This would be his brother's swan song. Without the luxury of further thought, his right hand moved forward at lightning speed. Moonlight glinted sharply off the knife's blade in the instant before Mitch buried it to the hilt in his brother's bulbous head. A searing wall of pain slammed into Mitch's own head, nearly strong enough to blind him. He screamed, pulled the knife free, and staggered back, understanding only too well what fruit the consequences of his actions might bear. 
he and his brother were linked in some incomprehensible way, and by killing him, well, the ramifications were obvious. Mitch stepped forward, however, and again buried the knife into the abomination, ripped it free, and plunged it in again and again and again. Each time the blade did its dirty business, Mitch howled into the echoing night like the tortured soul that he was, both writhing in agony and exulting in triumph, as if life and death were part of the same blurred purpose. Eventually, all emotion receded, only to be replaced by its antithesis, oblivion. Numb, Mitch continued silently on with his slaughter, the abomination spitting and writhing beneath his assault, but not offering a single hand in retaliation. This only fueled the ambition inside of Mitch, spurring him on to even greater heights of brutality. If he never forgot the crimes his brother had hung around his neck, then so be it. If he survived this night, then he would have to live with them. This was an incontestable truth. With this slaughter, he'd become the killer he convinced himself he'd been all along. The fear borne out to its inevitable conclusion. Vile-smelling sewage jetted from the wounds he was opening up in the now motionless carcass, soaking Mitch with its poisons. After a very long time, the feeling gone from his body and the sanity from his mind, Mitch pulled the knife free for the final time and staggered back, inspecting his handiwork. He wiped the sewage from his face with the sleeve of his shirt, staring down at the mutilated form. He leaned over and retched, puking muck from his mouth and nose. Unable to hold on to his consciousness a moment longer, Mitch collapsed in the sand beside his mutilated brother and slept. Sometime toward morning, the corpse, now reanimated, opened its sulphurous eyes and rolled over. Reaching out a small, palsied claw, it pried the butcher knife from Mitch's hand, turning its gaze towards the east in the direction of the town. It said, Mother, I'm coming for you. With its other hand, it caressed its sleeping brother gently on the cheek and said, I'll never leave you, Mitch. Well, this is it, boys and girls. The final episode of the Masters of Horror is now complete. If you enjoyed the stories, please consider purchasing a copy of the book. It is available in all formats for your Kindle, your Nook, or any other e-reader. You can also get it in good old print format, which is still my favorite. Did you have a favorite story in the collection? Let us know in the comments section. We'd love to hear. As promised in previous episodes, I've been giving away e-copies to monetary supporters. I've also taken those names and entered them into a drawing for a signed print edition. I was originally only going to give away one, but I can't help but be generous considering all the help and support I've gotten over the last few months. The winners of the signed print edition are Amy Tapia and Danielle LaPaglia. Thank you both for your generosity, your continual help in spreading the word, and your support of the podcast. It is most appreciated. There are many, many others I also must thank, as I couldn't have pulled this off on my own, including Christopher Carlson, who composed the music for the cast, the readers, Paul E. Cooley, Neil Colhoun, Emma Newman, Danny Davies, Marty Perrette, C.T. Theme, Kate Sherrod, Casey Ray Hunter, Jim Bronyauer, and Morgan Scorpion. Also special gratitude to Sue Taliaferro and Tony Nolan for their promos. Lee Pletzers and the rest of the Masters of Horror authors for all their work, and of course, the late Tia L. Brink, who in her way told me that I not only could pull this together, but should. Last but certainly not least, thank you listeners. Without you, what would be the point of any of this? I've had a lot of fun, but the time has come. Don't worry, I and Shadowcast will be back soon. I have a few things in the works as we speak and I should be able to make an announcement in the next week or so. Until then, it's time for jargon. This episode was produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. 
copy it, share it, pimp it, and leave us a review on iTunes. Just don't sell it or change it. Until next time, this is Jason Warden reminding you that nothing is simple. Thanks for listening. Stay well.